Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. As Dave said earlier, uh, Matt McCullough, who normally preaches, is uh, with his family on a little vacation. And so, um, just to fill you in on where we are in our study of James, this year we have walked through the Bible and what the Bible has um, included as far as wisdom literature. And we've looked at Proverbs, we've looked at Job, we've looked at Ecclesiastes, and now James. And all of these books have something to say about living wisely in the world. And so we have summarized wisdom as an instinct that helps us to live sensibly in the world. And this instinct that we have informs us how to make decisions, how to live day-to-day in the nitty-gritty of life. Wisdom ultimately is for practical living. And this is where James really springs forth as well. He cares so much about us being wise. And the book of James is all about faith. And specifically, faith, according to James, is a faith that works. And so we're going to look at that. We're going to unpack that. And we want to hopefully grow in that as hearers of God's word. But James says that biblical faith is a faith that acts. It's a faith that works. And ultimately, it can't be any other way. If it doesn't work, then it's not real. It's not genuine. And so our hope today is that we would walk away with a way to examine our own hearts, to examine our own faith. And we're going to look at it in three ways. We're going to look at why faith works. We're going to look at how faith works. And we're going to look at where faith works. Why, how, and where. Now, James, as we've also said, doesn't spend a lot of time on explanations or principles. He has a lot of of words to say about taking action, do something. But we don't want to confuse the many commands that he has that he doesn't care about the heart. Because ultimately, actions flow from the heart. And that's what James is saying. That if you take care of the widow and the orphan and you keep yourself from doing any major sin or major shortcoming, that doesn't mean that your faith is genuine. Perhaps an analogy would be helpful. I think of it like gravity. If I was holding a ball and I released it, what would happen? It'd fall to the ground. And you would see the falling of the ground. But you don't see gravity. But we all know it's there. That's why we're two feet on the floor, right? And we're not floating. But gravity is at work behind that ball falling and keeping all of us on the ground. In much the same way, the heart is what behind, is behind our works. That's where faith comes from, where it's established, and where from the overflow we act. And that's what James cares about. The Christian life is ultimately a process, and it's defined by faith. And James is going to show us how faith works. So if you would stand with me in honor of God's word, we're going to start in James chapter 1, verse 19, through the end of the chapter. 
Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So James is going to take us through three steps of understanding how to have a faith that works. First, why faith works. What is it that makes faith possible? James says at the beginning of this passage, know this. At the beginning, he says, know this. Know what? Or translated a different way, this you know, my beloved brothers. This you know. What is it that we should know in order that we live with an active faith? James tells us, in the verses leading up to this, exactly what he means. Look at verse 17 with me. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Here, is the beginning of wisdom, according to James. There are three aspects that drive this point home. First, you have an active faith if and only if God gives you new life. Second, he accomplishes that new life by his word. And third, so that we would be like him and act like him, having an active faith. Now, I want us to be careful because we have to get this right. We don't want to focus merely on doing something and miss the heart, okay? If we're going to be a people with active faith and not be deceived with a mere outward appearance, we have to look at the heart. Perhaps you haven't seen the problem yet. James does tell us that we have a big problem. What's the big deal? Why do we need to look at the heart? James focuses on this big problem earlier in chapter 1. But the Bible, the entire Bible, tells us about this problem. It's a universal problem. It's a human problem. 
It's that our natural hearts want nothing to do with God. We don't want to live under God's rule. We want to rule ourselves. We don't want somebody telling us how to live or what to do. We understand that, don't we? But let's listen to how James describes this. Look at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And that desire gives birth to sin. And sin brings forth death. That's the natural order of our lives. Sin and death. Doesn't that sound familiar though? Isn't that what we've been studying throughout the wisdom literature? The message is the same. Wake up. We live in sin and death. We have a heart problem. So why does faith work in the first place? What is it that gets us from death to being a person of faith? Someone who's actively doing the will of God, loves doing the will of God, wants to do it, has joy in doing it. First, God has to give us new life. We need a heart change. We need life. How can we, being dead, give ourselves life? Can we? We can't. Just like we had nothing to do with our natural birth, we have nothing to do with our spiritual birth. Works, in and of themselves, will not save anyone. God is not impressed. But, what we need is new life. Look back at verse 17. Of His own will, He brought us forth. could be translated, He bore us again. Gave us new birth, new life. That's what that means. The Bible talks about this process in a lot of different ways. We won't go into all of them, but just one, one of my favorites, is in Jeremiah 31. We hear the description of a new covenant. This is what it says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, for the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Is that good news to you? I hope it is. 
Because God just did some heart work in any of us who have faith. He has done it. And how did he do it? How did he declare his new covenant? It's through Jesus, the only one who lived a complete, perfect life on earth. He gave up everything he had in heaven and came down to live like us, but he was without sin, the Bible tells us. He lived the life that we should have lived, but didn't. And he died the death that we should have died. That in trusting in him, believing in him, repenting of our self-rule and self-life, and claiming all that he is for us, gives us new life. Paul speaks of this new creation, this new birth, in a couple different places. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And again in Ephesians 4, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Maybe Jesus says it best. You must be born again. Right? John 3 says to Nicodemus and Nicodemus doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. Right? This is the heart transformation that has to occur. And when this transformation happens, new life happens. New energies, new relationship with God, new taste buds. You can see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You cannot, if you are dead, taste. So first, we have to be born again. We have to have new life. We have to come from the dead How did this new birth happen? James says in verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word. By the word. 1 Peter 1 explains this beautifully. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Friends, there's two aspects at work here. One that is seen and one that is unseen. The Spirit of God moves and is changing hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. He's giving new life. The Word of truth is proclaimed. All that Jesus offers for us sinners, new life, forgiveness of sin, fellowship with God, righteousness that's not our own, eternal life. These are all the things that He gives and offers to us sinners that are undeserving. And the visible in us is that we respond. We respond outwardly by faith and that comes from this new heart. Without the supernatural work of God, we do not respond in repentance and faith. All of this work is of God. It's His gift to us, in fact. And it happens when His Word is proclaimed. Thirdly, what is the result of this process, this new life? What happens? 
to our lives. The result is a life that looks like him. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection brings us sinners into a family. The Spirit comes, implants the Word in our hearts, and what overflows from that are good works. Those good works are an inevitable result. Not a precondition. You don't do the good works so that you're approved by God. But they do come. And James says, if they don't, you don't have genuine faith. So works come. They overflow from a heart that's been transformed and been given life. So we are part of a family, adopted as sons and daughters. Our Father gives us every good gift. He's for us. And we begin to look like Him. We take on the family resemblance. There is no other way. So we have been restored in this new life. Once we were fatherless, in darkness, and ultimately dead. Now we have new life. And we are not our own. The Bible says that we were bought with a price. Jesus lived the life we were supposed to live and died the death we deserved. And He now lives as our Lord and Savior. He defines how we should live. And, thankfully, He gives us the power to do it. This you know, my beloved brothers. Faith works because through Jesus, we have been given new life. Now our lives will reflect the Father if that faith is genuine. So that's the first one. Why faith works. Second, how faith works. So we've said works are inevitable. They go hand in hand with life in Christ, with this new birth. God gives life where there was death, and He brings us forward to look like Him. But the question is, how does this active faith get fueled? So that happened in our hearts. How do we stay fueled? How do we persevere in faith? Aren't we feeble and weak? I know I am. Well, friends, God knows this. He knows our every need, and He gives us every good gift. So besides His Son and His Spirit, which we've already talked about, He also gives us and preserves us by His Word. Listen to the way James talks about this. Several points here. Verse 18, brought us forth by the Word of truth. Verse 21, receive with meekness the implanted Word. Verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law the law of liberty, and perseveres. The Word. The fundamental claim that James is making is that if you're going to be a doer of the Word, you have to engage with it. You have to love the Word. You can't do it any other way. I think it can be hard for us with our busy lives, 
24-7 news cycle, you know, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and everything else. There's so much stuff to fill our lives with. And one of the first things that seems to go is engagement with the Word. It seems dull or boring or underwhelming or has no power. And James is telling us that should not be so. That is not true. Especially those who have the new life. Serious engagement of the Bible is not a distraction from a faith that works. But it's an investment in a faith that works. Say that again. Serious engagement of the Bible is not a distraction from a faith that works, but an investment in a faith that works. The Bible, spending time in it, soaking in it, has a multiplier effect. You think your heart is dull? Go to the Word. Let it set your heart aflame. You don't want to do something? Go to the Word. Ask God to work and speak through it to help you love that hard person. To work with that terrible boss. You need to spend time in the Word so that we can pursue the world in love and that we look more like the Father. It has a compounding effect. The more you do it, the more you get out of it the more you look like Jesus. We cannot be like Him without His Word. Think of it like salt, right? Salt preserves. Salt preserves just like the Bible preserves us in faith that will keep working. When you're at the end of yourself, the Word throws some salt on there and helps you to continue to walk in faith. Don't lose that. And as long as there's a conflict within us, the battle to do that we have, must do with sin and around us, the fallen world that exists around us, we have to be engaged in the fight of faith. And the key is the Word of God. Jesus said, Man shall not, be, shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you see your life as dependent on the Word? It is. And there's two aspects of receiving this Word that we need to keep in mind, that James focuses on here in our text. One is our attitude, how we approach the Word. And second, what is it that the Word does? Okay. First, we need to engage the Bible with an attentive spirit. Verse 21, receive with meekness the implanted Word. The implanted Word means that there was new birth already there. It means that we have to continue to fuel that and we receive it with meekness. 
not just something that we check off of a list and say we've done it for the day, but really sit and meditate and chew on it, soak in it, let it fill our minds and hearts. You need to approach it like you need to receive something from it. Do you feel like you have a need? God says, come to my word. I will give you the fuel you need. This, friends, is how wisdom works. Wisdom sees that it needs something. Doesn't it? That's what we've said. We don't have it all figured out. We don't have all the answers. We need wisdom. And wisdom works by receiving the Word with meekness. Some of the commentators talk about this word meekness being teachable or ready to submit. Right? The opposite would be to partially take it in, kind of take some of it, leave the rest. Or this cocky self-assurance that, eh, I know how to interpret this, and I know what this means, and I know how this applies to my life. Like you don't need anything. But friends, we are dependent on God to receive from Him exactly what we need for our day, both for the joys of life and the tri- trials of life. So first... It's our attitude that we approach the Bible. Second, what does the Word do? The Word ultimately creates doers. Let's look at it. James gives us this vivid image. He's very good at that. He does that throughout the book, and it helps us to really connect with this idea of what he's trying to say. And it's in verses 23 through 25. He's comparing and contrasting a doer of the word versus a hearer only. And he says, the hearer only is like a man who looks at himself in a mirror and walks away and forgets what he looks like. Versus the contrast is looking at the word, looking at the law of liberty. So some of you may be asking, how does this guy walk away from the mirror and forget what he looks like? If you're like me and have an ugly mug, it's kind of hard to forget what you look like. But somehow that's what he's getting at. Somehow he's saying the hearer only is like the man who walks away and forgets. But maybe we can relate to this. Have you ever looked at your watch or your phone to see what time it is? And within two minutes you're like, what time is it? You have to look at it again? Maybe, hopefully that's not just me. But it happens because we don't really focus on what time it is. It doesn't have an effect on us, and we forget. So why is it that James is making this contrast? What does he mean? What's the difference here? What should we focus on? There's several different ways to interpret this contrast. Is he talking about the objects that are being looked at, the mirror versus the law of liberty? Is it contrasting the length of the gaze? Is it somebody who briefly looks at the mirror and then kind of forgets or really spends a lot of time the the word and perseveres? Or is he really contrasting their response, forgetting versus persevering? I think the commentators, again, are, are helpful here. And I believe the best way for us to focus 
on what the text is focusing on is to look at the response of the viewers. Both the man in the mirror and the one who looks perfect into the perfect law are capable of two different responses. But the key failure, hear this, friends, the key failure of the hearer only is forgetting. Do you forget who you are? Do you forget what Christ has done for you? That's what James is getting at. This person looks at the mirror and walks away and he forgets. And keep in mind, for this more Jewish audience of James, what would they be thinking about? They would automatically go back to the Old Testament. Because what was the key issue with the people of God? They forgot who they were. You can look at Exodus. You can look at Numbers. You can look at Deuteronomy. You can look at Malachi. I'm going to talk briefly about Exodus. But it's all throughout Remember who you are. Remember whose you are. In Exodus 13, verse 3, God has delivered His people uh, with Moses out of Egypt. And He's commanded them to celebrate the Passover. Interesting that we had communion this morning. But He's telling them to remember and celebrate the Passover. And in addition to this, He tells them to set apart their children, right? Listen to what it says. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. Remember. There is something to be said about remembering. Again, in Numbers and throughout, it talks about putting reminders up of the Word, of the commandments, so that you don't forget to do it. They would tassel it on their clothing so that when they would see each other or look at themselves, they would see a reminder that they are gods, that they are, have been set apart to live out the commandments of God. This is why we also celebrate the Lord's Supper We are tempted to forget. That's why we listen to the Word every week. That's why you can't do it alone. We need each other to be reminded. What was the problem with the people of Israel? What is our problem? We're forgetful. And James knows this. And he's telling us we can't live without engaging the Word. This is why God has to change what we love. God's means for changing what we love is through careful engagement with His Word. Don't neglect that. To contemplate and bring to mind the Word will make a lasting impression on the heart and the mind. It will change us and it will fuel us into action. It will fuel our works. Because again, James says, faith without works is dead. We we have a faith that is active. So the Word gives life. He's brought us forth. He, He gives us new hearts. We are born again by the Word of truth. 
And that word of truth helps us to persevere. Let me give you an analogy that I found helpful. A pastor and commentator on this passage helped me to connect with how the Word works with our faith. And he compared this faith with oxygen. Oxygen. It causes life. If you're dead... You're not breathing, right? But oxygen poured into the lungs through the diaphragm causes life to begin. That's what we've talked about, the new life, right? And oxygen, if you're alive, has to happen. You have to breathe. Your body will do it for you, basically. I don't know how all the science works. I know a lot of medical people. You can probably come tell me afterwards, but... Regardless, oxygen is working. It gives us life, and without it, we're dead. You're breathing, and if you're breathing, it means you're alive, and therefore, you're getting more oxygen. You receive it because it's already in you, just like the Word. No one says, you know what? I have oxygen. I don't need to breathe. I already have it. Thank you very much. I'm capped out. No, you have to keep receiving it or you're dead. These two actions of oxygen flowing into the lungs to give life and the constant breathing, these things are inseparable. And that's the way our lives are with the implanted word. It has given us new life. And we can't breathe, we can't live without it. Why is it, friends, that we try to hold our breath for so long? Do you find yourself reading the Bible on Sunday and waiting until next Sunday to get another fill? You're depriving yourself of oxygen, of life. It's not healthy. And in fact, if you're not careful, it may reveal something else that ultimately you're dead. Don't hold your breath. Breathe in the oxygen of God's Word. Breathe in and sustain life. Keep it going. Faith works by constant feeding, breathing on the Word with meekness, which gives and sustains life. So friends, persevere in the Word. Lastly, where faith works. James is very practical. He gets into the very nitty-gritty. And I think for most of us, it's probably going to be a little uncomfortable or convicting. And that's good. So where does faith show up? James says that faith shows up in our works. Not just an inward sense or feeling. That's not what faith is. But faith through works. It, it accomplishes something. Faith is accomplishing us looking more like Jesus. 
And it's possible to have an active faith because God has given us new life and the Word guides us and sustains us and keeps us going so that we look like Him. Three areas. Look at them with me. Mostly in verses 26 and 27, but it's throughout this Scripture and throughout the book of James, in fact. One, it's the taming of the tongue or controlling the tongue. Second, it's caring for the vulnerable. And third, it's pursuing personal holiness. You want to examine whether your faith is genuine and it's acting the way it should be acting? Look at these three areas. It's not an exhaustive list. There are many other ways to also look, but James is getting very practical. So examine your heart. See and make sure that we are not being deceived, that our faith is genuine. A couple of points on taming the tongue. Notice in here that he's focused on the passive activity. That's what's wrong with not taming the tongue. If you just coast, if you don't think the tongue is dangerous, you're going to be deceived, he says. The passive activity is what is being confronted What is being encouraged is bridle the tongue, tame it, control it, don't be deceived. We, just like these hearers, might be in the danger of thinking that as long as we don't break some big rule or get exposed or break any commands, then we're off the hook. James says that's not true. Look at your tongue. How do you speak? Is it controlled? Or does it lash out? Does it set things on fire, like he says later on? I think it's also important for us to make the connection. The mouth and the heart are linked. Jesus says this, right, in Matthew 12. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth, speaks. This is a good way to examine our hearts. What do you say? How do you engage with your spouse or your kids or your co-workers or your friends? Better yet, to the people serving you at the restaurant who don't do a good job. Or the cable company. That'll get everybody. Who is messing with your service or charges you too much? How do you speak with them? Does it reveal a heart that has been given new life? I hope so. And lastly, about taming the tongue, humility. Look at verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick To hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Two postures. Posture towards God. Do we receive His Word with meekness? Are we ready to listen 
instead of be spoken to God? Are we complaining about the circumstances of our life? Or do we come to hear from Him and to receive a word and encouragement and stirring up our faith? We have to look outside of ourselves for what we need. That's our posture towards God. Posture towards other people. I think this is the best way to sum it up. One of the commentators says, The great talker is rarely a great listener. And never is the ear more firmly closed than when anger takes over. So we are to bridle the tongue. This is what reveals a genuine faith. This is an action that we are all called to do. Second, caring for the vulnerable. God, our Father, cares about the vulnerable. It's clear here in what James says about true religion, pure religion, undefiled religion, is to take care of the vulnerable. But God has always cared about the vulnerable. In Psalm 68.5, it says, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in His holy habitation. We should care about the vulnerable. Why is that, that that caring for the vulnerable shows an act of faith? I think because it comes at a huge cost that doesn't get repaid. If you're helping somebody who is in great need and who's vulnerable, you do not expect to get something back from them. And that is exactly the way God would have it. It comes at a huge cost and it's not going to be repaid. We should be involved. We should care. And we should lay down our lives to help alleviate the economic and social distress of the vulnerable. That is God's heart. And that will be our heart if it is one of faith that works. We should care about social justice. We should care about abortion. We should care about foster care. We should care about all sorts of injustices. Because we care more than just about ourselves. But what's interesting here too in reading this is the contrast or the the companion rather, not the contrast, between doing this, taking care of orphans and widows in their affliction and keeping oneself unstained from the world. I think we get this wrong so often. We do one or the other. We either care so much about social justice and we'll go after providing clean water to everybody, the slave trade, uh, abortion, all of these issues. And we should, by the way. But we either do that and forget about personal holiness that we're called to, that we need God, or we stay away from the world because we don't want to be stained by it and we don't engage with the concerns of the vulnerable and the social justice issues because we care about personal purity and holiness. 
that also should not be so. Somehow, by the power of God through His Word and the Gospel, somehow it is to be both. In the world, but not of the world. We need wisdom for that. James will help us get there. The Bible will help us get there. But ultimately, God will get us there. So we also need not only pursue social justice, but also pursue purity. Keeping unstained from the world. Verse 21, it talks about removing, putting away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. And receive the meekness with meekness the implanted word. We have to put that to death. We have to keep fighting the fight of faith. And we have to keep pursuing purity that we look like our Father who's in heaven. You can look up later. Galatians 5.13, 1 Peter 2.16. It talks about this fight. This freedom that we have. And the freedom that we have by trusting Christ is to fight. Okay. And then lastly, unstained from the world. What does he mean? Does he mean to separate from the world? How can that be if he says to also care about social justice and the widow and the orphan? We don't want to withdraw from the world. But we do want to keep from being influenced by the world. The world here that he's talking about ultimately is the corruption and the negative influence and anything ultimately that's at odds with the lordship of Jesus over our lives. It's easy to get pulled in either direction. But ultimately what he wants us to see is that it's not just about the biggest decisions in life. It's not okay that we just get those right. We have to to live day to day in the mundane Every detail of life with purity and with care for the vulnerable. I'll close with this. There's a, a hymn that Indelible Grace did. Uh, it's called, I Need Thee Every Hour. It's written by uh, Annie Hawkes in 1872. She was a, a mom to three kids, a, a wife to a husband who worked. She mostly was responsible for taking care of of the home and the kids. And she wrote a personal account of where these lyrics came from, where these words came from. And I want to share it with you as you consider how we should pursue faith, an active faith that works in everyday life. Here's what she wrote. I was busy with my regular household tasks during a bright June morning. Suddenly, I became so filled with the sense of nearness nearness to the Master that wondering how one could live without Him, either in joy or pain, these words were ushered into my mind, the thought at once taking full possession of me. I need Thee every hour. I need Thee every hour, most gracious Lord, No tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee every hour, 
Stay thou nearby. Temptations lose their power when thou art nigh. I need thee every hour in joy or pain. Come quickly and abide or life is vain. I need thee every hour. Teach me thy will and thy rich promises in me fulfill. Pray with me. Father, we desperately long for a faith that works. We see in ourselves distractions, sinful tendencies, and all sorts of things that keep us from engaging in Your Word. So help us to see our need and to help us to see that You give us the power to live by faith and a faith that works in the day-to-day with wisdom in every possible way that we should. You are the giver of good gifts and You withhold nothing from Your children. Draw us close to You so that we would ask of You. And We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.